The abomination of desolation is a specific end-time sign spoken of by the prophet Daniel and by Jesus himself. But what is it exactly? In this episode, we're going to look at history and scripture to find the truth. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today on this beautiful day that the Lord has made. I hope that you are having a wonderful day. Today we are jumping into the book of Daniel a little deeper. Last week we started our series. We actually didn't start the series last week, but we, we switched gears from talking about the Millennial Kingdom, uh, which you haven't if you haven't seen those episodes, I highly recommend that you do because everything's building steadily on top of each other. But we really switch gears into the book of Daniel, and we talk about the we talked about the seventy weeks of Daniel, and how that is the key to understanding all of the rest of the end times, both in Daniel and in Revelation. There's so many prophecies, so many time related prophecies, and we really only can understand them clearly from a historical perspective. And what that means is looking at the time prophecies by using the day to year principle. We talked about that last episode, so if you haven't never heard of that, then Go check that out. It's a good resource for you. But basically, the idea is very simple. The idea is that one day when there's a Bible prophecy or a vision with a specific time that's portrayed, one day is equal to one year. And so Daniel's 70 weeks are really actually 490 years because a week would be seven days or seven years. And there's 70 weeks, so it's 490 years. And we looked exactly how history fulfills that to the year. So the prophecy of the 70 weeks was about the Messiah, was about Jesus' life and ministry, and really it was about the chosen people in the Old Testament, which were the Israelites, being chosen to carry the gospel up until the Messiah, and then that status is over. Just another indicator of the kingdom, the gospel, all these things that we talked about in the previous 10 episodes or so, and how the ultimate reality, which is the church, the body of believers, not a particular denomination, not a particular building or group of people. It's really just the body of Christ, the people who place their faith in Jesus, who try to live by his words and and love him. Ultimately, that's really what it's about. So the body of Christ is the church and the church is the temple. The temple is the kingdom and all these things are equated to one another. And that reality is the reality that's been prophesied. That was the reality that everything's been leading up to. So there's no more chosen people. This whole idea that dispensationalism teaches, which is that Israel, 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 it's all about Israel. Let's watch Israel because they're the prophetic timepiece and they have their own plan of salvation and whatever is happening in Israel, that's what's going to happen in relation to us. All this stuff is really a deception. And hopefully if you've been with me so far, um, you know, you, you have learned that and you've seen through that And throughout this series, I'm going to keep reiterating that point, that ultimately some of these things that are being blasted in the mainstream, even in, you know, well-meaning Christian channels that have been deceived by dispensationalism, they're the watchmen channels, people who are watching, you know, Israel, the intention is there, but they're very deceived. And unfortunately, they're deceiving others with this whole idea of a pre-tribulational rapture and Israel, 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 all these things are being choreographed. And hopefully as we go into this series, you'll see more and more by who. Who is doing the choreographing of this false end times narrative? And why are they doing that? That's really the question that we should be asking. But last week we talked about the 70 weeks, how the 70 weeks proves beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that prophecy, uh, time prophecies are used through the day-year principle. And so if the 70 weeks is part of a greater prophecy, um, which is the 2300-year prophecy, and we'll get into more of these in future episodes, but the 1260-year prophecy, 1290-1335 prophecy, um, and these things are mirrored in Revelation, where John talks about the 1260 days as well. And so all these things are talking about very large periods of time and therefore are historically fulfilled. And so with that context in mind, we'll, we'll unpack these greater time prophecies in future episodes. However, there is something important that we take from last week's episode, which is that if this is if the 70 weeks and all these things are related historically, not literally, not you know spiritually, but these are historical prophecies that are fulfilled throughout time, then this idea of the abomination of desolation, which is mentioned by Daniel several times, and we'll go through that, it's also mentioned by Jesus. He warns us to recognize that sign. Then what do we make of that, right? So ultimately, in this episode, my goal is to look at how Daniel and Jesus speak about the abomination of desolation. What is it, right? We'll look at how it's also been fulfilled spiritually in history. And what does that mean for us living today? at the end of history. Now, if you recall from the previous episode, we have a end times timeline sheet, basically a timetable. I don't know what the right word to call it is, basically a timeline, I guess, of all the end times prophecies. So they're all graphically laid out for you in a way that you can zoom out, zoom in, compare and contrast. You have the, the bottom is Daniel, the top is uh, John's Revelation. And you can see how everything just aligns so perfectly, but you can also see how a lot of it's been fulfilled historically. Now, I'm not a preterist saying that everything's been fulfilled, but most of history has happened. And so we're at the the time right now between the sixth and seventh seals. We're in the seventh lukewarm church. We are, you know, between the sixth and seventh trumpets. There's a lot of things that have been fulfilled. And so we're at the imminent hour, you know, Christ could return in this generation. I don't know. If that'll be the case, I like to believe that's the case. But in either case, a lot of these things have been fulfilled. And so when we look at this thing of the abomination of desolation, what is it? What does it mean for us living at the end of the age? And there is a relevance, even though it's been fulfilled spiritually. It will be fulfilled, I think, to the maximal degree once we see the arrival of the mark of the beast. And you'll understand why as we go through this. But the abomination of desolation is spoken by Daniel a couple times. But in the New Testament, Jesus speaks about this and references the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks about. And so let's go to the text. In Matthew 24, which is a famous end times chapter, there's a whole little chapter dedicated to it. The abomination of desolation, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so there's a warning here from Christ about when we see something standing where it shouldn't be, basically, then flee. Now, there's a couple more verses I want to reference and then we'll, we'll look back at this. So Mark chapter 13 speaks of the same. These are all parallel texts. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, 
let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this one's worded slightly differently, but again, it's pointing to something that's standing where it shouldn't be. Luke 21, verse 20, this is Jesus foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem. But when you see that Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So this mentions the desolation. It mentions Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And of course, what was this all pointing to for the people who are living at the time? And this is, this is an important preface that I'm going to say to this. Remember that there is a physical before the spiritual principle throughout the Bible there where something prophetic happens in reality, physically, and then that's actually portraying a spiritual reality to come. We looked at this on the episode, I think it was the fifth episode in this series, on Israel and the Third Temple, and how all this talk about the Third Temple being rebuilt is Bible prophecy, the Abraham Accords, the Peace Covenant. This is not Bible prophecy. This is engineered false prophecy, so they can bring in their false peace, their false antichrist. I mean, who knows how it's all going to play out exactly, but again, it's not Bible prophecy because the third temple was always spiritual in nature. We looked at that. We looked at all these things in the Old Testament that were physical, they were real, like the sanctuary, which we will look at it, um, we'll look at it today again because it's very relevant to this topic of the abomination of desolation. But we looked at things like circumcision and how that was a, a type for a spiritual reality, which is circumcising the heart. We looked at being born again. That's a spiritual reality. We looked at how Christ is the cornerstone, that we are living stones in the temple. The temple is the body of Christ, which is the kingdom, which is the church, the body of believers. All this stuff is the same same stuff, the Lord's table. All these things are spiritual realities that are portraying communion with God. And the idea of a temple was a physical type, just like the sanctuary was the type for the message of salvation, for the gospel that would come through Jesus. All these things were revealed in Jesus, but they were cast, right? They were cast in the Old Testament. It's like the cross, the shadow of the cross is the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is the shadow that the cross casts from the future into the past. It's a very profound way of thinking of it, but if you really devote your studies to the Old Testament, you see how things relate to the New Testament, how Christ revealed everything, how there were types for the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Abraham and Isaac, Joseph being betrayed and sold for 20 pieces of silver and then redeeming Israel uh, later, um, you know, Moses being an intercessor between the people of Israel and God, Aaron the high priest. I mean, everything practically Almost every book, I'm sure you could find a type for Jesus, multiple types. It's a really fascinating study. But the point is that the physical, although it's real, it also acts as prophetic for the spiritual that is greater and more meaningful in the future. This is a very consistent principle throughout God's Word. And so now the question is this. When Jesus was talking to these people about the abomination of desolation and warning them, he's warning them about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened between 66 AD and 70 AD, where they destroyed the second temple and, you know, they destroyed Jerusalem. It was a pretty bloody situation. So what happened there? Well, the Romans basically surrounded Jerusalem in 66 AD, and then they, they retreated, but then the Jews, you know, some zealots followed them, and 
basically murdered a bunch of them. And then so the Romans got really upset and they came back and they surrounded Jerusalem. They destroyed it and burned everything to the ground. Tiberius basically set up his standard. I believe in the temple or somewhere on the temple mount. And this was a very drastic thing. And it was predicted by Jesus, right? Now, the question is, what do we make of this? Do, if you're a preterist, meaning you believe everything's been fulfilled already, it's in the past, there's no meaningful, there's no antichrist, there, there's nothing that we need to worry about. If you're a preterist, then you'll see that this should be taken only literally, that there's no relevance to what happened to Jerusalem as a foreshadowing of something much more significant in the future. If you're a futurist, which is dispensationalism and all the things that we've been talking about, which are deceptions, and they, they see things literally, then you see the abomination of desolation as something where the third temple has to be built physically, literally. Then a, a person, some charming antichrist guy who made a peace covenant, steps into the temple, declares himself to be God, and that's the abomination of desolation, where this person steps into a physical temple and declares himself to be God. And so that is in the tribulation, the future 70th week of Daniel. All these things are related with a futurist view. And obviously these things are very popular because if you go online, you can see pretty much everybody talking about these things. But are they correct? And so far, we've proven no, they're not. They're deceptions. First and foremost, you can't have a pro no prophecy in the Bible, no time prophecy whatsoever, whether it's through the visions that Daniel received or John or their actual time prophecies where, you know, Abraham was told that his descendants would wander or live in Egypt for 430 years. Those are all time prophecies. Nowhere in the Bible where there's a time, time prophecy is there a gap between some time there. So, you know, you have lots of time prophecies. None of them have this thing where some of the prophecy happens, and then there's a huge gap, longer than the actual prophecy itself, and then you have a little bit that ends in the future. This is what dispensationalists do with Daniel's 70 weeks. They take the last week, the 70th week, and they put it in the future. So much so that the, the span of time, the gap, is like, you know, 2,000 years or whatever it is, right? And, and so the question is why that doesn't make any sense. There's nowhere that's done in the Bible. And of course, other reasons why the dispensational understanding of the 70 weeks is nonsense. We covered that last episode. It was a longer episode, but it's one of those things where, you know, it had to be done because there's so much evidence that you have to consider, especially when you look at history. History is very complicated and it, it takes a lot of digging because a lot of people settle for, for some things that are not as vague and say, oh, you see, we can't trust history. Well, if you do your digging, you can trust history because God allowed us to find the truth so that we could see and verify that his word, of course, God's word will stand, but it's very empowering to see just how precise all these prophecies really are. And so if that's the case, then this whole idea of a future physical temple where the abomination of desolation is some guy walking into a, a third temple and declaring himself to be God, this is a deception. It's nonsense. Now, with that in mind, is there a possibility? So you have the preterist view, which thinks that basically this already happened in the past at some point in time, whether it's Jerusalem 
or even earlier, because there's a lot of wars and conflicts that happened in Jerusalem. Obviously, it's always been surrounded by conflict. Some preterists say that it was Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll get into that in a future episode. That was um, in the BC times. I think it was like 160 BC. But the point is, the preterist view is this is already done. There's no relevance to us today. The futurist view is taking Daniel's 70 weeks and butchering them, basically, and saying, oh, it's going to happen when there's a guy that walks into the physical temple. And so you ignore the spiritual reality, the spiritual consequence of what Jesus was warning about here. And that's what we're going to explore today, which is how has this been spiritually fulfilled already? And what is the meaning for us in the end of days, if this is the case? Because there is a double fulfillment. Many things have double fulfillment in the Bible and even multiple fulfillments. As we have seen through typology and the study of types and shadows in the Old Testament, how they are fulfilled in Jesus. And so how let's look at how Daniel describes the abomination of desolation. And we're going to see how that double fulfillment plays itself out because it's really, truly fascinating to the point where you can't ignore the facts. You can't ignore the facts. You can't ignore the truth. And ultimately, if your attention is on physical, worldly, fleshly things like futurism and dispensationalism tries to put it on with this whole idea of Israel, 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 then you miss who's really behind the scenes, who has stepped into the temple. Remember, the temple is the body of Christ. It's the church, it's the body of believers who has stepped into that temple already and proclaimed himself to be God. That's already happened. Now, that's happened in a spiritual way, and it's going to happen in a maximal way, I believe, when the mark of the beast comes into play, probably within our lifetimes, but in either case. How did Daniel reference the abomination of desolation? Well, there's a couple places in Daniel that we'll look at. So first is Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. And he says, now I'm going to compare this. I'm actually going to use the KJV because, again, if you remember, there's a lot of things that when it comes to Bible prophecy, with especially with Daniel, um, the, K, the KJV differs very much from other translations like ESV. ESV is a good translation, but some of the mistakes that it makes in translation are pretty bad. And some of them make you believe, okay, well, obviously whoever's translating this has a preconceived view of the end times so much so that they translate it in a way that it predisposes you to interpret it in a certain way. So that's why in this particular case, I trust the KJV much more. Not always, but anyway, Daniel 8 chapter 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? Now again, sacrifice here is added. All these words in italics are added. It's really saying the vision concerning the daily. And we'll get into that in the next episode, what the daily is. But in the transgression, the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trotted underfoot. So this is talking about the transgression of desolation, and it's the kind of the first time this, this whole idea of desolation is, is talked about. And it's in the context, again, of this 2300-year prophecy that he's received. So, again, it can't be just Jerusalem in 66 AD because there's a lot greater time periods here that this is talking about. And you'll see as we piece these various verses together that it really can't just be referring only to what happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a shadow and a type for a much greater spiritual reality that would happen afterwards. But there's a couple of important details from Daniel 8, 13. 
we know that both the sanctuary and the host will be trotted underfoot. The host are God's people. And the sanctuary, as you will see, is the plan of salvation. It's the gospel message. Now, there's a very, very good reason, reasons, I should say, plural, why this is the case. And we'll get into that. But the sanctuary hasn't been around for a while. Once Jesus came, he came to abolish the sacrificial system. So the destruction of Jerusalem happened afterward. The sanctuary was no more, it wasn't relevant anymore. Now, if you remember from the Talmud we looked at, Yoma 39a and 39b, there was a tradition that the rabbis had where they would, you know, they do these physical things like put a a ribbon around the goat, it would turn, it would go from red to white, they would cast lots, they would, you know, they would various different things, right, that they would indicate whether their sins, their atonement was complete, and whether their sins were forgiven. Remember, that Judaism is a fleshly, physical, worldly signs uh, type of religion. They're, they always looked for signs, even in Jesus' time, that the apostles wanted signs all the time, right? And so that hasn't changed culturally. But the Talmud records that between the period, the 40 years before the destruction of the temple, which is basically right after Jesus was crucified, all these signs that the, the rabbis were doing on their day of atonement would come up negative in the sense that, no, the sins weren't forgiven. God rejected your atonement. And so that's really interesting, isn't it? That's I think that's huge proof that not only was the Jews' time up as the chosen people to deliver the gospel message, but this is, this is a sign from God that you are rejecting the only offer I gave you for forgiveness, and you're trying to go through your own works and through the sacrificial system that was abolished. Remember, Daniel 9, the, the verses in question that we looked at in the 70 weeks, they talked about the Messiah who confirms the covenant. It's not the Antichrist. This is a futurist deception. He's taking the one prophecy about the Messiah and flipped it and turned it about the Antichrist. This is just horrible in my opinion. But in either case, the, the verses in question last week, we talked about how the Messiah confirms the covenant. He brings everlasting righteousness, put it, puts an end to sin. I mean, that's Jesus. And Confirming the covenant is the covenant of grace. It's the new covenant that he inaugurated with his sacrifice. Now, with that in mind, he put an end to sacrifices. Okay, so this is how it all kind of ties together. If this transgression of desolation, talking about the host and the sanctuary to be trodden underfoot, how long? Well, how long? The answer is 2,300 days. So this whole time period has to deal with this prophecy that Daniel first received the long 2300 time period, which we'll get into again. These are these are all related, but to, to talk about all of them would take hours and hours and hours. That's why I've split this up. But this prophecy, this 2300-day prophecy, talks about the host and the sanctuary being trotted underfoot for 2300 years. This is a period of time where the sanctuary and the host are trotted underfoot. Now, if the sacrificial system was put an end to with Jesus's death on the cross in 31 AD, then this doesn't concern the actual physical sanctuary and the host, meaning just the Israelites. It's talking about something greater. It's talking about the church, the ultimate reality of the people who believe in God through Jesus and the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary 
again, became irrelevant like a long time ago. They had the temple and the sanctuary, you know, the, the sanctuary was no longer an issue. And then once the temple got destroyed in 70 AD, there's no more sanctuary at all. Like there's no more place to do those things because again, the sacrificial system was put to an end. And so if this is talking about the host and the sanctuary being trod underfoot for 2,300 years, then there's something greater going on. This is, this is really the point to be putting away. Now, in later, remember the sequence of events. In Daniel 8, he was given this vision, this, this bird's eye view, 2,300 years. And he didn't understand the vision. He, he was confused about it. Of course, anybody would be because he, he didn't understand what's going on. And so he prays and prays for God to give him discernment and understanding. And in Daniel 9, Gabriel comes to give him more of a breakdown of like, okay, so out of that 2,300 years, 70 weeks are decreed for your people, which is the 490 years. That's the Messiah prophecy. And then there's other prophecies that come in line with that. So that big chunk that was given to him has several other small chunks within it. And that's what Gabriel comes to reveal in chapter 9. So in chapter 9, Daniel 9, verse 17, we, we again, we touch on this idea of desolation. It says, Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. So Daniel's trying to understand this prophecy. Daniel's trying to understand the 2300 prophecy. And he he's praying, he, the sanctuary's desolate. There's, you know, remember, this is right before the second temple gets rebuilt. This is right after the Babylonian captivity. He's recognizing that the time is coming to an end. Again, another indicator that the people in Daniel's time, they were looking at scripture historically, right? So the whole point why Daniel's praying is because he also recognized that the time that Jeremiah had prophesied for 70 years was coming to an end. He realized like, oh man, these, these prophecies are coming to an end. Let me pray and, and what's, you know, get some clarity. And so that's an important point that Daniel thought that prophecy was historical, but in either case, he's praying and he's speaking of the spiritual reality or sorry, physical reality. Of course, he's a second temple era Jew. He doesn't, understand the full revelation of the Trinity, the gospel, the plan of salvation, the suffering and conquering Messiah. All these things are revealed in Jesus and they were kept hidden up until that time. They were, they were given types and shadows to the prophets, but the prophets didn't fully understand what they were prophesying about. And that's pretty clear, right? So ultimately they spoke in Old Testament language. And right now he's speaking in Old Testament language. He thinks like, oh, the temple's going to be rebuilt. And it will, the second temple is going to be rebuilt. But when he says sanctuary, he's talking about the physical sanctuary, which is desolate. Because remember, the Babylonian captivity, everything was disrupted. But God's going to speak to him now. He's going to respond to him through Gabriel in a spiritual sense, right? So Daniel doesn't know what's going on. He, he's praying for clarity, and God's going to respond to him in a spiritual sense when he talks about this, the sanctuary and the host trotted underfoot, and so on. Now, Daniel 9.27, this is where the the next mention of a, overspreading of abominations, desolation, these things are all related. This is where it's mentioned. In Daniel 9.27, which is the last verse in that messianic prophecy, the Daniel 70 weeks that we covered last week, 
Uh, it says this, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that the and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now let's compare this with the ESV again, just comparing the ESV. Now look, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sac sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured on the desolator. Now, this one is better than some of the other verses in this chapter, but one thing I do want to highlight is, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, compare that to the KJV where it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So the difference is confirm versus making a strong covenant. It's very easy if you have preconceived notions, futuristic notions of a physical antichrist walking into a physical third temple where he breaks the covenant or he makes a covenant or whatever, however you believe it. That there's a false peace covenant and he breaks it and so on. It's very easy to, to read the ESV version where he says he shall make a strong covenant versus when you read the KJV, he shall confirm the covenant. Confirm is a very different verb. Confirm means there was something already before, and that covenant was the old covenant, but it was a covenant of grace from Abraham that he would that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, that was fulfilled through Jesus and the gospel, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so this is the covenant that's the new covenant, the ultimate covenant, which is grace. And so again, these are these are things you have to pay attention to with these translations, especially when it comes to Bible prophecy. Because a lot of people, I think, who translated this are futurist-leaning. And again, if you remember, futurism comes from the Jesuits. It was, a, it was a tactic used to take attention off of the papacy, something called the Counter-Reformation. Look it up. And that's very well documented. The papacy was recognized as the Antichrist power on the earth by the Reformers universally. They recognize the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, which you will hopefully see is, is starting to see in this episode. We'll get deeper and deeper into this in the following weeks, but all these things were historically fulfilled. So in Daniel 9.27, first things first, remember this is about the Messiah. It's not about the Antichrist. If you look just one verse earlier in 26, it says, after, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. This is talking about the Messiah, but not for himself. Verse 927, it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Who is he? He is Messiah. He is the Messiah. It's not like suddenly it's talking about Messiah being cut off. And then suddenly it switches gears to the Antichrist 2,000 years later. That makes absolutely no sense. Especially because confirming the covenant and being cut off, sacrificing himself, right? Not for himself. These two things are related. Jesus' sacrifice was the new covenant. And that's pretty clear from reading the rest of scripture, right? But he confirmed the covenant for one week. Halfway through the week, Jesus puts an end to sacrifice. If you remember the, the brief timeline that we will go over this briefly from last week, very in-depth episode. If you're curious for specifics and how this was fulfilled historically, I'm not going to go into it in this episode, but check the last episode. So, Basically, Jesus begins his ministry 27 AD. 
he was about 30 because he was born in 3 BC. 27 AD is 483 years after 457 BC. 457 BC is the date of the first, or date of Artaxerxes' first decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This is what the whole prophecy deals with. And 483 years, which is 69 weeks, right? The last week is Jesus' ministry, leads to 27 AD. To the year, exactly so. And 31 AD is when Jesus was crucified. Now, some people think it was 30 AD. That's wrong because that's only there's only two Passovers. There's a hidden Passover, and we covered that in the episode that was in AD 30. So Jesus was actually crucified in 31 AD, which means that the prophecy is right. The last week, halfway through the week, three and a half years, he was crucified, which is 31 AD, spring of 31 AD. And 34 AD, which was three and a half years later, that's when Stephen was stoned. It was the first martyr. So between the 31 AD and 34 AD, the Jews had time to learn the gospel. And a lot of them did. Pentecost happened. Thousands of people converted. But there was a lot of opposition. And eventually, they killed Stephen. And Stephen's martyrdom basically spread everybody out. At that time, also, Peter got his vision to go and give the gospel to the nations. Paul, Saul got converted. A lot of things that happened that basically said, okay, the time is done. And it was done. 34 AD, the 490-year prophecy, the 70-week prophecy, was over. That was the final week from Jesus' beginning ministry from 27 AD to 34 AD. That was the final week. Not It's not a future week. The 70th week already happened. And once it ended, the time for the Jews as the chosen people ended. As you can clearly see from the Talmud, the 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the Day of Atonement, every time that they tried to do it, they were rejected. So you tell me, one plus one is two in my book. So that's pretty obvious. But in either case, the time ended. And what does that mean? Well, that means that everybody now is invited to the gospel. There is no separate plan for salvation for the Jews. It's There's no Jew or Greek. Everybody is in the body of Christ or you're not. And so all of this in this Daniel 9.27 is talking about what's happening with Jesus, with the new covenant, with the sacrifice. But what is, I want to, now that we have the context for that, I want to focus on this statement in verse 27. It says, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. What was the overspreading of abominations and what was the desolation? The desolation happened in Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and it was left to them desolate. So it was desolate, but why? Because they kept, they rejected the gospel. They rejected the Messiah. And God is a just God. And for, for the 40 years up until that destruction, they had warning signs like, listen, you're not forgiven. Why aren't you forgiven? Because you rejected the Messiah. And they still proceeded. So there was overspreading of abominations. Even though God had put an end to the sacrificial system, they kept sacrificing. They were shown that they were rejected as the Talmud clearly documents historically, and they continued. So the overspreading of abominations, it's an abomination to sacrifice, to think that the blood of bulls and goats can replace the blood of the eternal God. And so the overspreading of abominations, he made it desolate. That was the desolation spoke of in this verse. And so we're starting to paint a picture here that 
the things that happened in 70 AD that were warned by the the Messiah in chapter uh, 9, verse 27. So this is Daniel warning us about what's happening. The Jesus warned us in the Gospels about what would happen to Jerusalem, but he also warned us there's, there's a spiritual meaning I want you to pick up on. And as we go through these verses, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, another way to read this, this whole idea that's expressed in cha- chapter 9, verse 27, is that the abomination was set up after Jesus died. And it's going to be desolate even until the end when everything is destroyed. When Jesus returns, he destroys the beast system, the Antichrist power, and death through the resurrection. The Romans made it desolate initially, but the power after the Romans, which is the little horn power that Daniel speaks of in his four beasts, we will get to those in the future episode, made it desolate spiritually. And so we have to explore what what that really is, because it's quite phenomenal how it adds up. Now, in Daniel 11, so a couple more chapters where this is mentioned, and we'll, we'll look at everything together afterwards. In Daniel 11, verse 31, this is the king of the north, and we'll talk, we'll spend a whole episode on this, because it's a very involved episode, and it's going to be pretty mind-blowing, hopefully, but the king of the north, and it's, again, mentioning this idea of the sanctuary and desolation, so Let's read it. Verse 31. An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So again, it's mentioned, and it's it's mentioned in connection to something that is put in place of the sanctuary. I want you to pay attention to these details. So it's put in place of the sanctuary, and it reduces the sanctuary's power in some way. So it's going to pollute the sanctuary of strength. It's going to rob it of strength somehow. And again, if the sanctuary was no longer a thing after the crucifixion, then what is this talking about? Because all these prophecies in Daniel 11, Daniel 9, Daniel 8, Daniel 12, which we'll talk about next, they're all related to this time prophecy of 2,300 years, which again, day to year principle. The Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah, the 70 weeks, day to your principle, that's connected to the 2300 days. So the 2300 days is 2300 years. And all these things that are talking about setting up an abomination in place of, you know, the sanctuary, polluting it of strength, trotting down the host, these are connected to these time periods. So we have to think in broader ways. Now, in Daniel 12, this is the last chapter in Daniel and uh, basically, it's it's giving us, again, another marker that really seals the deal here because it's it's tying the abomination to of desolation to a time prophecy. So let's read it. Daniel uh, chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily shall be taken away, again, remember, sacrifice is added, from the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. So from the time that the daily is going to be taken away, we have, an, we have a brilliant time marker here that now puts it all very clearly. The abomination of desolation. So from the time that the daily is taken away, now we're not going to look at the daily in this episode. That's next episode. But again, remember, sacrifice, the word sacrifice is added. So this is where people get crazy because 
they think, you know, oh, it's again, it's the Antichrist in the future that's going to stop the temple sacrifices, the third temple. Nonsense. It's, it's Jesus that stopped the sacrifices. But in this case, it's not talking about that. It's, it's talking about something else, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But from the time, this is the important part. From the time that the daily is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there's going to be a thousand and two hundred and ninety days. Now, again, day to your principle, twelve hundred and ninety years where this is going on, basically. So now that's proof right there that what Jesus was talking about can't only be referring to the three and a half year period in Jerusalem from 66 AD to 70 AD, where the Romans came and basically made it desolate. That was judgment on Jerusalem for rejecting the Messiah. Absolutely. But that judgment was also a type and shadow for something else, something much greater and something much more important. It's a time prophecy in this case, in Daniel 12, that now links the abomination of desolation to a time period. And so this is this is so important to understand because, again, you can't take the 1290 days as a literal time because the 1290 days is part of the 2300 days. We know that the 70 weeks was also a chunk that's part of this 2300 days, 2300 years. And so if the 70 weeks proves historically, that it's being fulfilled historically to the year, every year was like on point. There's no mistakes. Then all these other time prophecies are day to your principles, talking about years, long periods of time. And you'll see as we go through these episodes, how precisely all of this actually really is, how precise it is, and how precisely it's been fulfilled in history. So it can't be talking about Rome only, right? And we know that the, the Romans put up their banner physically and they destroyed the sanctuary, meaning the temple. They trotted the host at that point, people who were, you know, left. I mean, Jesus warned believers that it, once you see Jerusalem surrounded, then head for the hills. Because what happened was they surrounded, then they left. Remember, the zealots attacked them, so then they came back and totally destroyed Jerusalem. So now this physical reality that happened where Jesus is warning believers that there's this power, this antichrist power, basically, that's surrounding Jerusalem and seems like they're going to retreat, but then they come back and then they destroy it. They destroy the sanctuary. They, they crucified it. When they invaded Jerusalem and they destroyed everything, they crucified thousands of people. I mean, it was horrible, right? If you were in Jerusalem at that time and you didn't heed the advice that Jesus gave, you were, you were in bad news. Let's put it that way. So the question is this, if this is relating to a spiritual reality, what is spiritual Jerusalem? What does that signify? What does the sanctuary mean spiritually? Could there be some meaning there that we can extract and see what this all comes together? I think there is. And the question is, what does it also mean to pollute the sanctuary of strength? If we know that this isn't talking about just some physical sanctuary, some physical temple, which became irrelevant a long time ago, but rather something greater. Maybe the sanctuary represents something, maybe the plan of salvation. If that's the case, what is putting itself in place of the plan of salvation? What is robbing the plan of salvation of strength? That's where our eyes need to be because those are the spiritual realities that this is pointing to. And we have some support for that where 
desolation is a spiritual thing. If we look in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7 through 11, it says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I'm going to use the ESV, actually, just because it's easier to read. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of my prey against all against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is, ma- is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. This is talking about apostate Israel. The Lord answers Jeremiah, and he's talking about the apostate Israel. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied the Babylonian captivity. So this is about Israel being apostate, which we can see throughout the Old Testament. They're always rebelling. But we also see this in Luke chapter 13, verse 35, where Jesus speaks and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is verse 34. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in the KJV, it says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and verily I say to you, you shall see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So your house is left to you desolate, empty, that's a, he, there is a spiritual complaint here that Jerusalem and the Israelites have had a lack of faith. And because of that, they have a desolate house. Now, there is a physical meaning that applies there. There's going to be judgment upon them for the lack of faith. But desolation, emptiness, death, all these things relate to spiritual realities too. So we can definitely draw a spiritual conclusion from this abomination of desolation. Yes, there was a physical event that happened in Jerusalem that Jesus warned about, and that's obvious. However, there is a greater spiritual reality when we understand the meaning of the sanctuary, when we understand the fact that these are related to a time prophecy that spans thousands of years, not just 1260 literal days. If that's the case, then it can't just be talking about the physical sanctuary because the physical sanctuary, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Do you see the, the importance of history and the importance of seeing how all these things are connected? All the verses we read in Daniel where this is mentioned, up until the last verse in, in um, chapter 12, it wasn't clear exactly, but we pieced it together. And in chapter 12, you see a time prophecy connected to the abomination of desolation. And that time prophecy, again, once you understand Daniel's 70 weeks, which is the key to the end times, that time prophecy, the 1290 days, is 1290 years. So it's not talking about the temple, the physical temple. Why would it be? God talks about spiritual realities. It's always about spiritual things. So conclusion here, the physical foreshadowed the spiritual. What happened in 66 to 70 AD was a foreshadowing of something much greater that would happen spiritually to the church, to the body of Christ, and to the kingdom, right? Everything, all those terms are the same. And so what would happen? Well, we'll find out. Because Jesus was addressing both the people of his time 
and future generations. Again, when we look at Bible prophecy from the historical lens, we understand that Bible prophecy is valid for anybody living at any point in time. People who are preterists say that there's nothing to worry about. There's no, you know, Bible prophecy is not relevant to us because everything already happened in the, in the past. And what, why is that so important? Well, because you're ignoring things that are happening and that will happen, and you're setting yourself up to be deceived. Same with futurists. Futurists say, well, all the Bible prophecy is all about the future, and it hasn't happened yet. And you're looking at physical, fleshly things that take your attention off of spiritual realities. Again, the players behind the scenes, the ones who are manipulating everything, and who will bring in the beast system. Remember that Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, do not be deceived. He says that a couple times. He warns that the deception is going to be so great that even the elect could be fooled if possible. Now you tell me, like, should we, I mean, how do you take that? I take it as a very serious statement that if Christ is going to warn about the deception being that great, that the only way you're not going to be deceived is if by the hand of God is going to give you eyes to see, then there's some going to be some really deceptive things happening. Maybe there's going to be a false Jesus, a false Christ, a false millennial kingdom. All these things that we've been talking about and why it's so important to have eyes and ears. But in either case, just like types and shadows were throughout the Bible to, to foreshadow future spiritual realities, the same thing happened with Jerusalem. So the big question is this. Can the sanctuary be symbolic for something? Is it symbolic? Is it, is it symbolic for something? And the answer is yes. The sanctuary was symbolic for the gospel, the plan of salvation. And the three stages of the sanctuary, if you're not familiar, the sanctuary is what the Hebrews built in the wilderness. It was basically their temple before the temple was built. The sanctuary was a structure that was portable, that they would set up, and it was given to them in a very specific way. God was extremely specific about how to build it, how it would look, for a very good reason, because there's so much in there that pointed to Christ and the gospel message. So let's look at that. And the first thing is the door. There's three layers in the sanctuary. <laughs> Excuse me. There's three layers in the sanctuary. There's basically a camp that's got, you know, four walls. And I'll put a picture for it on the, on the video, but if you haven't, if you're listening to this, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google like Old Testament sanctuary and look at images. And there's, there's a ton of them there. They're all kind of the same as far as quality. There, there's an outside kind of wall, like four, there's four walls, right? It's an outside courtyard sort of thing. Then inside there is a tent. And then in the tent, there's like a really special place called the most holy place. So there's the sanctuary, there's the courtyard, then there's the mo there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. So each of those three stages, people would come into the sanctuary through a single door, and there was a lot of things that would happen there. But let's look at how this sanctuary beautifully outlines Jesus and the plan of salvation. It's really, truly profound, like all things in the Bible. But the sanctuary had only one door. We'll start with that. The sanctuary had only one door, and... People knew that. All the Old Testament people, or the people in Jesus' time, knew the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says he's the door in Luke, or sorry, in John uh, 10 verse 9, people knew what he's talking about. He said, I am the door. 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And that's what he's talking about. He's the door. There was only one door into the sanctuary where you would basically go and cleanse yourself of sin. And the sanctuary's walls were covered in white linen. Again, white, there's constant themes throughout the Bible where we get robes of righteousness, white robes of righteousness, white is righteousness, innocence. And so once you enter through the door, you're made righteous, right? Now, of course, the Old Testament was flawed. You know, the, the sacrifices were limited. It wasn't true righteousness, but that's why God was so specific about these things because he's painting a picture physically, using physical people and real things that happened of something spiritual that is unlimited, that doesn't have a physical limitation. And so he's doing that so you understand very specifically how all of this works. It's really quite beautiful and poetic. Now, you also had an altar where sacrifices were made, where basically you would kneel and confess your, your sins before the priest, you would put your hands on the lamb, and basically that's where the, the sins were transferred onto the lamb for the, as the propitiation for your sins. Now, we know from John 1, verse 29, that Jesus was the lamb of God. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, this is John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's a whole typology with Jesus as the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, right? And so that's pretty obvious that the Lamb represents Jesus and that Jesus was his, uh, was our propitiation for our sins, our substitution, right? He took our punishment in his place. Now, the altar also represents the cross where the Lamb died because that's where the Lamb was crucified. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Which, by the way, again, this is referring back to Daniel 9.27. This is the covenant that that's speaking of. Not some peace covenant that a future Antichrist is going to make. It's nonsense. It's talking about the covenant that Jesus made through his sacrifice. But the altar represents the place, the cross as well, where Jesus was crucified for our sins. Now, when you enter in the door, you're surrounded by white linen, like I said, and that's righteousness. And we know that from Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And there's plenty of other verses, too, where white robes of righteousness are related to righteousness, uh, yeah, basically to spiritual righteousness, right? So there's always the physical that represents the spiritual. God does this all the time, and it's really quite beautiful. Now, you also had something called a laver, which is a plate, like a basin, where people would be washing themselves. And that's representative of baptism, of being born again, right? Being washed free of sins through the second birth. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. The baptism is a, was typified through previous things that were physical. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
pay attention to this, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is sat at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Which, by the way, is another proof text that he's already king. He's not going to be king in the future. He has to be king now because he has to be king and priest because he has to intercede for us. If he's not king, he's not priest, there's no gospel. So you see how this whole futurist eschatology just leads you astray. But the point of this, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, Peter is making a relationship. He's identifying a type. And this, by the way, is how you should go about looking for types. Don't try to make them up on your own, but rather start with where does the Bible clearly identify where God used a physical thing to foreshadow a spiritual reality. Peter here is making the, the distinction that the, that the ark and going into the ark and being passing through water was a foreshadowing of baptism, where basically not because you're removing dirt from the body, right? Again, infant baptism, we'll get to this in just a minute, but infant baptism is nonsense. You can't make an appeal for a good conscience to God, i.e. repent and have a change of mind, a change of heart. You can't do that when you're an infant. Okay, so infant baptism is nonsense. It's a physical, fleshly, worldly interpretation. Again, it's religion. And I certainly grew up with that, but baptism is not about the physical. It's about appealing to God for a new conscience. It's about repenting and a new life. And being washed physically is just a symbol of that. But really, it's about appealing to God. Look at the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized with water. But he appealed to God in his final moments, and he was saved. That's really what it's about. The, the second birth, baptism, was typified in these physical things that happened. The Noah going through the water, even the Israelites when they were passing through um, the Red Sea. All these things were physical foreshadowings of things that would be spiritual in the end, in the future. And so all these, the labor in the sanctuary, the first layer of the sanctuary represents being born again, coming through the door, confessing your sins, basically repenting, accepting Jesus' sacrifice, right? That first stage of the plan of salvation. It's really beautifully painted in this physical thing that actually happened, which was the sanctuary. Now, the people didn't understand but they were told to do this so that there would be memory and repetition. So when Jesus came and introduced the spiritual reality, they would be like, oh, okay. Now, most of them didn't recognize that, and that's why they crucified him. But the ones who did, like the apostles, obviously see a connection between all these spiritual realities and the physical ones that God created through history. Now, there's a second section. So once you get into the sanctuary... Once you pass through the door, that's that initial point. Remember, so spiritually, what are we talking about here? It's being born again, making the decision to trust Christ and to accept his death in substitution for yours. And as a result, to die spiritually to your old self and to be baptized and to basically start a new life. Now, once you're in the sanctuary, there was a tent. The tent itself contained the holy place and the most holy place. Now, the tent itself was very specific as well as this whole thing was. And so a couple a couple interesting things about it. The coverings on this tent 
if you read about the coverings, the outside coverings were made of badger skin. So it's very rough, very like, you know, it's just rough. It's It doesn't say anything regal about it. But then underneath, you had red and purple fabric that was very high quality fabric underneath the badger skin, which is, again, foretelling the nature of the Messiah, which on the surface, there was nothing about him that was appealing, right? He was practically homeless. He wasn't, you know, worldly in any way. He was a humble servant. And yet on the inside, he was God incarnate for those who recognize the truth. And it's a truly profound thing. And so even in the architecture, we see this relationship. Now, within this tent, right, there were there were several things in in the holy place. And you had basically the candlesticks that were maintained. You had the table of the showbread and you had the altar of incense. And all these things pointed to Christ in some way. Now we know that Christ said in John 8 verse 12 that I am the light of the world. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lights in the candlesticks in, this most, in the holy place had to be constantly maintained. The light always had to be on. And so, again, why? Because it's pointing to this reality where the, the, the point of a type is it points to something that is greater than itself, right? The lights had to be maintained, but they were physical lights. They were, su- you know, subject to weather, to, you know, losing quality, whatever. It's like, I am the light of the world. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, He's saying, yes, you know that thing that you had to keep light on all the time that represented, you know, righteousness and salvation and was part of the whole plan? Well, I'm that thing, but actually way better. See how the types work? It's always, the types always fall short of the thing that they're typifying. And that's the point. They're outlining the glory and greatness of God. And so you had the candlesticks that were basically kept on. Jesus is the light of the world. You had the table of showbread which was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread stands for uh, sinlessness. That was the whole point of unleavened. Leavened was always associated with sin and with pride because it's right, it makes the dough rise. And what do we know from John 6, verse 35? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this will come back into perspective when we look at the most holy place in just a second. But Jesus said he's the bread of life. So again, you had the light, you had the bread, and you also had the altar of incense. And we know the high priest officiated that, and he was basically the intercessor between the people and God. And that's again, that's another typification of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You have to remember that. It's all about Jesus. And so when you see types and shadows, it allows you to see clearly. But if you're looking at only the physical and, and fleshly things, then you're going to miss the point, which is what Judaism does. Judaism today are the people who rejected Jesus, who failed to see the connection between these things and how Jesus revealed them because their eyes were lusting after physical fleshly things. They still want to build a third temple. They want to offer sacrifices and still trying to earn their way into heaven. It's not going to work. But the altar of incense, we know from Revelation 5 verse 8, that incense is related to prayer. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. So incense represents prayer in scripture. And of course, in this case, there was actual incense, but that was supposed to be a typification of how the high priest, which is Jesus, 
takes our prayers and brings them before God. Which again, if you remember, there's the tent, and then inside the tent, there's the most holy place, a place that the high priest only entered once a year to make atonement for sins. So you couldn't just go in there, you would get killed, because that was the presence of God. And so you have this three-tiered system, which ultimately leads to communion with God. It's really so profound. The first stage where you enter through the door, which is Jesus, you're born again. And then the second place, which is the holy place, that represents sanctification. So you have justification, where you're made just, you're made justified because you have faith in Jesus, you're justified. You're made righteous in God's eyes because you're not condemned. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It means we have a, a whole journey after that of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit and growing in our faith and growing in our gifts. And that's typified by the second place, which is the holy place, right? So, so the, the, the table of showbread, the candlesticks, and the altar of incense. So praying, right? Prayer, having daily prayer. What's the bread? Feeding on the word, right? You have the candlesticks, the light of the world. Jesus also said that we're the light of the world too, to be the light of the world, to do the good works that we're called to do. That doesn't mean that good works will save you, but that's part of having, you know, faith without works is dead. How do you know that your faith is genuine? Because your life has changed and you're doing different things. And that's how you know. And so ultimately, this represents the journey of sanctification, of getting closer and closer to God. Remember, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We are going to be like God in the sense of his character. Obviously, that's going to take an eternity. But while we're here, we're also being conformed to the image of Christ. While we're still here and alive, we are being conformed. And so we're journeying through that sanctuary until the final place, which is communion with God, which is what will be in the eternal state, where Revelation reminds us that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. It's communion again. All the separation has been abolished. We have physical and spiritual communion with God, which is going to be um, unbelievable. I mean, I can't even imagine it. But in either case, the most holy place, which is the final room, right, the final layer of this, is about communion with God. And now we know from Hebrews 10, verse 20, that the veil is open. But for the full assurance of faith, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what's he making a reference to here? It's making a reference to the sanctuary by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So this is making an allusion to the sanctuary. And it's saying the sanctuary was a type for the future reality, which is through Christ. The curtain of his flesh opened the way for us to have communion with God. In the past, you couldn't even enter the sanctuary. The high priest entered the most holy place once a year. You couldn't just walk past the curtain. You would get killed. So it was a, it was a, it was a sign of the separation between God and man. And Jesus, his sacrifice, not only did the temple curtain tear in two, right? The physical showed that, okay, the spiritual is now here. There's no more separation between God and man because of Jesus. But the curtain of his flesh, how he was pierced for our transgressions, that was the, the thing that opened the way between us and God. And so there's so much symbolism between this that it's, it's very clear that the sanctuary represents the 
plan of salvation in Jesus's life. Now, in the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. You had God's presence, and you had the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Voice is getting a little dry. Okay, just took a little drink of water. But the Ark of the Covenant basically had three things in it. It had Aaron's rod, which was the rod that God basically showed to pick Aaron when, when people were arguing against Moses and Aaron. God basically had a supernatural miracle on the rod, and he grew almond blossoms and buds from the rod to show that he had chosen Aaron. And that represents resurrection, life from something that was basically dead. You also had a pot of manna. Remember who said he was the bread of life? Jesus said he's the bread of life. He is the manna from heaven, the true manna, right? The physical represents the spiritual. The manna they received from heaven that allowed them to eat physically and not die was representative of the the true manna, the bread of life that would come from heaven that we could eat from spiritually, as in feeding on the word, feeding on the words that Jesus spoke and following in his ways, and then we would have eternal life because of faith. That's all represented in the physical things that happened. He also had the Ten Commandments, which is the law of God. Now, of course, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he, and we know that from many places, one of them being the Sermon on the Mount, where we get a glimpse into how God thinks about morality, where it's impossible to, you know, get out of jail, basically, with our own efforts. You can't get out of jail with a, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card, right, in this game. If looking at a woman with lust is considered adultery by God, how is anybody supposed to escape the wrath of God? Well, that's the point. You need a savior. And that was the whole point. And so all these things in the Ark of the Covenant were pointing to Jesus Christ. Were pointing to Jesus Christ. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant is showing God's grace and justice and fairness and quality, the final meaning the final judgment seat where Jesus is going to judge everyone. And hopefully, if you're listening to this, you and the people you love will be on the right side of that judgment, right? Ultimately, our faith saves us, and we have to warn the world that if they do not have faith, regardless if they see Jesus or not in this lifetime, whenever he comes, everybody will be resurrected. Everybody will be resurrected, and some to everlasting joy and some to everlasting contempt. I really pray and hope that the people you love in your life have heard the gospel and that they believe, because to me, to wake up from death and to be resurrected and to be told, listen, you're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, like that's the worst possible, worst possible consequence I can imagine. Just worst possible consequence. But in either case, we know that Jesus is our high priest from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus, the great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we know that Jesus was the high, the high priest was typifying Jesus' role. And there's so much in there. I mean, there's whole studies on this, and it's really quite fascinating. We also know that the five types of sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, there were more than five, but the five main ones were grain offerings, peace offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Each of these sacrifices has something that is pointing to about Jesus and his ministry and his sacrifice. The grain offering was with frankincense. Now we know that Bethlehem, which actually means house of bread, that's where Jesus was born. He's the bread of life. 
The three magi brought frankincense. All of it's related to that. The peace offering was about fellowship and having peace with God. Well, who created that for us? Jesus did. The burnt offering, which was very common, was a free will offering, right? It was it was basically given up free freely by the people who were offering it. And that points to the fact that Jesus gave up gave up his life freely. It was his choice to do so. We know the sin offering that whatever touches it became holy. And so, of course, if you're touched by the blood of Christ, you become righteous, you're justified. And, you know, sanctification is the process after that, through our works, through the things that the Holy Spirit guides us to do. We, we learn to be more like Christ, but we're justified the moment that we touch the blood of Christ spiritually through our faith. And we know that there's the guilt offering where the guilt offering was in relation to restitution. And it's the only one dealing with that, where basically you had to redeem certain things and you have to pay restitution. Well, that was pointing to the fact that, you know, Christ said, it is finished. Now, to tell us die which is in the original language, Tetelestai was written on receipts, which actually meant paid in full. So Tetelestai, when, when Jesus said it is finished, it actually means it's a redemptive term, like Tetelestai, it's paid in full. The, the debt of sin has been paid physically and spiritually. And basically, we're, we're, we're free. We're free of our debt. And so all these sacrifices, I'm just going through them very quickly, there are very in-depth studies on these. You can look them up. Typology and the sacrifices. Typology is the high priest. Typology in the sanctuary. All pointing to what? Jesus and the plan of salvation. That's really the conclusion. And the, and the main point here is that the writers of the Bible in the New Testament saw the sanctuary and the associated things. Now read the book of Hebrews. It's very clear. The book of Hebrews is like a hall of typology. They saw the, the sanctuary and the the priest system, the Levitical system, the, the sacrifices, all of those as types and shadows for Christ. So that means that the sanctuary, seen in a spiritual sense, is the plan of salvation. We know that the abomination of desolation has to deal with the greater reality because it's it's a time period that we're looking at. Remember, it's part of the 23-year prophecy. So this is talking about greater things. So it must be talking about the gospel being suppressed, twisted, robbed of power somehow. And if that's the case, we should look at history and to see how does that happen? How is what has put its play, itself or something else in place of the gospel? What has trotted the saints throughout history? What has tried to make the gospel desolate? And these are the questions we should be really asking. And when you ask these questions, you start to come to the truth of who the Antichrist power on the earth is. And you start to see clearly past all these deceptions, like the third temple being rebuilt and all this nonsense going on with pre-tribulation rapture. And, and again, all these things are just designed to make you get lost. Daniel didn't understand his prophecies fully. Now, that's because he was an Old Testament saint. But nonetheless, what he prophesied, it's very clearly not talking about just things relating to the Jews. If you think that's the case, then you ignore how relevant this is to us today. And it's incredibly relevant. He wrote what God gave him. Ultimately, he was a messenger. You know, David didn't understand the Trinity, but he wrote what he was given. My Lord's, the, the Lord says to my Lord, well, what do you make of that? 
you make that David had some understanding that there's these two powers in heaven, which again, if you remember, that's a theology that the Jews had up until the first century where they declared it a heresy. Hmm, I wonder why. Well, the answer is obvious. The people who rejected Jesus declared it a heresy. But up until that point, they wrestled with this idea of two powers in heaven. You had the angel of the Lord, you had God Almighty, and, and so you had both of them were God, but then the angel of the Lord was subordinate to God. So how does that work? Then you had the spirit. Well, it's the Trinity. The Trinity is the only explanation. And we'll we'll get into that in another study. But the point is this. People who wrote the Old Testament, they didn't have full revelation. They were just writing what they were given. And they were using language that the people in their day could understand. But then later when things were revealed, the author of Hebrews, the other apostles, Peter, John, everybody started to make the connections that, oh, okay, this wasn't talking, God didn't intend to be talking about the physical temple. This is all spiritual reality that we're dealing with here that's much greater and of much greater consequence. So the question now, here's the million dollar question. Who suppressed the gospel? Who trotted the sanctuary? Who trotted the saints underfoot more than anybody in history? And the answer is the papacy. The papacy of the Catholic Church. And in the future episodes of this series, we will look exactly, detail upon detail, at how this power, this political power, has fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation more than any other possible power on the earth in history. And again, if you are looking in the past and saying, oh, everything's been done, there's no Antichrist, the, the Romans were the abomination of desolation, you are missing very important slices of history. And you're ignorant to what's about to happen in your present time because the beast will come back and it's already underway. So how was the sanctuary made desolate? Now that you understand that the sanctuary resembles the plan of salvation, how was it made desolate? Well, desolation is emptiness, not being used, right? It's useless, basically, right? So let's look at that. Well, where the sanctuary has a door, right? Who's the door? Jesus. The only way to the Father. Well, instead of entering through the door, the papacy, the Catholic Church, the Catholic institution, has made you believe that you have to be saved by entering through the church. If you're not part of the church, you can't be saved. So the door, the relationship with Christ, is made desolate. Nobody enters through the door. They go through the church, through the institution, through all these different rites and rituals. And which takes me to the second point, which is save, being saved by works. All the sacraments and the rat wheel of sacrifices that the people run in the Catholic faith and all the, you know, the Orthodox, I was raised Orthodox, same thing. You know, you're looking at 2 billion people on the planet just with those two religions. You look at Mormonism, same thing. All these things are based on works. But the Catholic Church specifically, partaking of sacraments to be saved means that basically there's no more altar, right? So the, the altar in the sanctuary represented the sacrifice of Christ. And when you put your hands on the lamb and you confess your sins and you repent, right? You are, you're, the lamb is becoming a substitution for your sins. But that's by faith. You've entered, you've repented, now you're made righteous. This, this new way of doing things, which was done, <laughs> not very new, it's actually pretty old, but since 538 BC, or 538 AD, when the papacy took power, we'll cover all this in future episodes, but since 538 
AD, when the papacy took power after the Roman Empire, it's all been about works. And works get you saved. The, the sacraments, the various things like baptism and, you know, anointing and, you know, doing all these different things, the communion, transubstantiation, we'll get into that in a little bit. All these things are what make you saved, not the sacrifice of Christ. It's not by faith alone that you're saved. It's by works. And again, this is the same thing. You look at Mormons, it's by faith and works. If you look at Orthodox, it's by faith and works. They've added things to the gospel. So they've made the altar where Christ died and where the substitution of sins by faith, they've made that desolate because nobody is going to that. Now, of course, there are some people who are born again in the world. Obviously, there's plenty of people. But the point is that throughout history, they have robbed the sanctuary of power. You have robbed all these things of power because they have added to the gospel and twisted its message. Now, we know that baptism has been transferred from something that signifies a spiritual death through repentance. You die to your old self. You wash yourself clean into this fleshly physical thing called infant baptism, which has no bearing whatsoever. People can be baptized as infants and then grow up to be serial killers because you can't make an appeal to a clean conscience to God when you're an infant. So you see how they've defiled all these things and made them desolate. The laver in the sanctuary is now desolate. Nobody uses it because its purpose has been made desolate. You also have the church as the light, as the authority, as the basically light of the world versus the word of God. And the lamp is made desolate in the holy place. The table of showbread is destroyed basically through transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the satanic idea. And we'll get, if you don't believe me, these are strong words, but I say them after learning and studying quite a lot. It's a satanic teaching that it is the body and blood, the physical flesh of Jesus that you are eating and drinking his blood and sacrificing him every mass. A mass is a sacrifice. And there are quotes I can show you in future episodes that this is the case. This is the belief system behind the mass, that you are sacrificing Jesus over and over again and then drinking his blood and eating his flesh in order to be saved. That is a satanic teaching. It can't get more satanic than that. It is one of the most craziest deceptions. Misinterpreting what Christ spoke of when he said, eat my body, drink my blood. He didn't say, eat my flesh. I'm going to be in that in that cup and you're going to drink my blood. No, it's about partaking in the words and in faith in Jesus' work so that we can be transformed. And that's how you're saved, through faith, not by eating communion and thinking that you're eating Jesus' body and blood. I mean, just totally made the table of showbread desolate. It has no purpose in the way that it, it's intended to be. Remember that showbread was about who is the bread of life? Jesus is the bread of life. He's the manna from heaven. Why is that important? Because bread sustained people in the Old Testament and bread sustains us in the New Testament as a fulfillment of that. It gives us everlasting life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy. And so bread was never about the physical things. It was about spiritual partaking at the Lord's table. Remember, that's being part of the kingdom. How do you get in the kingdom? How do you get in the Lord's table? You're born again. It's all the same thing. They're all spiritual realities. 
Now, of course, you also have the mediation that's been made desolate. Jesus is our mediator. He's our high priest. He's the one offering the altar of incense and the prayers to God. But that's been made desolate. Who has made, who has placed themselves in between that situation? Well, the Pope. The Pope is the high priest, Pontifex Maximus. It's a Babylonian title. And for a long time, Pope was called Vicar of Christ. Vicarius Fili Dei, which, by the way, adds up to 666, but we'll get into that in another episode. The Vicar of Christ, meaning the one that's in, in between Christ and you. Do you see how this is all starting to shape up now? A post-Roman power who set themselves up in the sanctuary, which is the plan of salvation, proclaimed themselves to be God, and robbed the sanctuary of strength. It's so clear. It really is. If you step outside this fleshly, worldly way of seeing prophecy. But the mediation and the altar of incense was made desolate. Now we look at the most holy place. How was that made desolate? We know that the veil represents Jesus' flesh. And basically that was the only way to be saved, to have communion with God. Well, the church is now the only way to be saved. The church is the exclusive way. If you don't, if you're not in the church, then you get excommunicated. You're not, you're going to hell. You're not saved. It's not about having a relationship with Jesus. It's about obedience to an institution. And the Ark of the Covenant, well, the law has been made desolate. Remember, there's three things in the Ark of the Covenant. The law, the tablets, the manna, and Aaron's staff. How are these things made desolate? Well, very easily. The law, the Catholics changed the law. They basically got rid of the commandment on graven images, and they split up the 10th commandment into don't cover your neighbor's wife and don't cover your neighbor's goods. So they got rid of the commandment, and then they changed the the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, from the seventh day to the first day of the week. And the prophecy in Daniel about the Antichrist power, the little horn, that also happens to rule for 1260 days, which is 1260 years, all this is related. One of the things it says is that he will think to change, to change times and laws. Did the papacy change laws and times? Yeah, the Gregorian calendar we have today is also because of Pope Gregory. And he changed the Ten Commandments. Isn't that all interesting? I just think it's just so fascinating. The manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, again, transubstantiation, that was made desolate. The whole purpose of the manna was to point you to Christ and having a relationship with him, feeding on his word with your spirit, with your soul, with your mind. And transubstantiation completely makes that desolate. It blocks your view of the spiritual thing by making you focus on something physical. This is the ploy of Satan. To blind you, remember the goddess world. The god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Well, guess what? The god of this world is alive and well in Catholicism, and in all these religions like Mormonism, Orthodoxy, <clears throat> he's blinded the world. How does he blind them? Well, not by physical blindness, but by fleshly blindness. He makes you see only the worldly things, where God always focuses on spiritual things. And, of course, eternal life through salvation in faith in Jesus. Aaron's staff represents the resurrection. But according to the church, the church, you have purgatory, you have, you know, indulgences, you have an immortal soul that lives on after death. You have all these things on the afterlife and eternal life that have nothing to do with faith in Jesus. It's all about obedience to the institution, you know, praying for the dead. People are dead. People who are dead are dead. They will be resurrected. This is a topic for another study, but the Bible doesn't teach of an immortal soul. The, the Satan, the, the satanic doctrine of 
you shall not die, was a doctrine that was in all pagan cultures, except the Hebrews. The Hebrews didn't teach that. But all the pagan cultures, you see that they all believed in this elaborate afterlife because they were lied to, that you shall not die. And so you can do all the, what is that? Why is that important? Why is that so important? Because it enslaves you in this life. Do you see the connection? If you know that you die and that's it until the resurrection, there's nothing more to do. But if somebody tells you, well, you know, they're in the afterlife, and then if you do certain things here for them, then, you know, then they'll get through different layers and, you know, whatever else. And what do you have in the Catholic system? You have prayers for the dead. You have indulgence. I mean, people aren't selling indulgence anymore, but they did for a while. The idea that you could buy your way through different levels of purgatory and heaven and so on. I mean, it's crazy, but all that relies on the lie that you shall not die, that you that you have this immortal soul that persists after death. Now, I know that may be controversial, and again, I'm not going to open that up here because it is a very in-depth topic, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The people who wrote the Old Testament and the New Testament did not believe in an immortal soul. That is a Greek idea. That's a pagan idea that's shared in other cultures, and for good reason, because the, the cultures were obedient to the fallen angels. The fallen angels fooled mankind that we are spirit beings just like them and that we can do stuff in the spirit world and, you know, can talk to your dead relatives and, you know, all the whole religious structure that was formed around these pagan ideas is to enslave humanity into something that doesn't exist. There is no afterlife. There is the resurrection and that's what our hope is in. Now, everybody's going to get resurrected. The question is, what side of the fence are you going to be on? Hopefully the good side. But either way, we know that the Catholic power as an institution trotted on the host, which is, again, host is the believers, right? The saints. Millions of people died at the hands of the Catholic Church through the last 2,000 years. 1,500 years, let's put it that way. But still, even from the 1,300s onwards, from Constantine legalizing Christianity and making it a church-state religion, basically, you've had so many times where Christians were persecuted by their own kind. Remember, Judas was, and we'll get into this in the episode on the Antichrist. Judas was a type for the Antichrist. Judas was part of the system. He was the treasurer. He was the one charged with all the money. Well, what do you what do you notice about the Catholic Church? The Vatican is the richest power on the planet, on the earth, I should say. I don't believe in planet. <laughs> I keep saying planet. It's just, just a habit, man. It's too many, too many years spent in the beast system. It's a habit, but I don't believe in a planet. The Bible doesn't teach a planet. It teaches a, a biblical earth, let's put it that way. But in either case, the point is this. They trotted on the host. Look at, for example, the Knights Templar, the occult, the Jesuits, secret societies, the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. Who is the mother of harlots? The Catholic Church. They gave birth to Islam. They gave birth to all these false religions. Everything that's come out of the Catholic faith, the Inquisition, Things like the St. Bartholomew Massacre, if you know what that is. There's been so much trotting on the saints, massacring people who were loyal to God, who wanted to keep the Sabbath, who rejected the Catholic Church's teachings, the, the people that were burned at the stake for questioning the authority of the Pope. You People forget this history. There's been more Christians dead at the hand of the Catholic Church than probably any other power, singular power in history. It has trotted on the sanctuary. It's made it desolate through its, you know, fake religion, 
that looks like Christianity but is actually Satanism. It really is. If you believe that you're eating the flesh of Christ every Sunday, worshiping on the day of the sun, and sacrificing Jesus on the day of the sun, that is not Christianity, my friends. That's Satanism. That's Luciferianism. And it will be coming back into power in these latter days. And that's why you need to get your eyes off of Israel. You need to get your eyes off of all this fleshly, futurist stuff. And you need to start learning history so that you can be aware of the players behind the scenes that are manipulating the shadows. Um, that's, that's really the thing. Now, look, <clears throat> we're going to get more and more into this. Today was just kind of a, an opening of this topic. We're going to get much more into this in future episodes and look at how the papacy has fulfilled this prophecy and more prophecies than ever than any other organization in history. But the mystery of iniquity, this this idea of this this rising power that would trample on the saints and put itself between man and God and, and proclaim to be God and, and make everything desolate. This mystery of iniquity was already at work in the apostles' times. And we know that from Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, there is a belief that this is the Holy Spirit. But my question to you is, can the Holy Spirit be taken out of the way? And the answer is no. The, an the answer to this restrainer is pagan Rome. You'll understand this much more clearly when we look into other things in the future about the history of different empires and how it was all prophesied and how basically pagan Rome was, was going to lead into papal Rome, which is basically the papacy. And how papal Rome is the little horn power that comes out of the final fourth beast. All these things, if you've never heard them before, don't worry about them. We'll, we'll make sense of it. But the point is this. The the power was already at work. This this idea, this, this religio-political power that would look like Christianity, stand in place, stand in the place where it shouldn't be, proclaim itself to be gone, make things desolate, trample on the saints. That was already at work. But the problem was there was a restrainer, and that restrainer was pagan Rome. The empire of the Romans, the pagan empire, was restraining this power from being fulfilled. Now, we know that in 321 AD, Constantine declared a church-state union. So that was a huge step towards making this power become a reality. And by 538 AD, just 200 years later, the papacy became basically the, the world power. It became the power that governed militarily and spiritually all of the Roman Empire, whatever was left of it, and Europe, and basically the, the modern world at the time. So what was this mystery of iniquity that was already at work? Well, there's a couple things that were already being documented at the time of the apostles. We know that counterfeit Christians had already started teaching a variety of things, like spiritual resurrection. And that's in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. But avoid irrelevant babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So what is this? They're basically saying that the resurrection has already happened, that the global resurrection, the judgment, has already happened. So there's this idea of a spiritual resurrection that, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, believe it or not, I think, 
this whole idea, this modern idea of the Christ consciousness. Oh, it's not the second coming of Christ is not a physical reality. It's it's us coming into this new age uh, revelation of ourselves and we are God and we're just like Christ and blah, blah, blah. This is a lie from the pit of hell. And this was already happening, you can see, in the time of the apostles, in, time, in Paul's time, in Timothy's time. You also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this was happening <clears throat> primarily with the Greeks because the Greeks were very spiritualized. Again, the Greeks believed in a lot of pagan ideologies, one of them being an immortal soul. So they brought a lot of paganism into Christianity. If you study the early church fathers like Origen, uh, and others too, like Augustine, they had a lot of Greek pagan philosophy they brought into the church, which influenced future generations and, and added to this whole mother of harlots idea. But they were already teaching that there's no physical resurrection. And you can see from these two verses and others too, but there was all these false gospels as well. Galatians chapter one, verse six, no other gospel. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there were already gospels in, in different heretics and people saying, oh, you know, it's actually not like this. Jesus was actually like this. Already in the beginning, other doctrines, we know from First uh, John 4, verse 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they are, they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is already by John's time. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, from, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, who you, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. What is the spirit of Antichrist? The spirit of Antichrist is the one that says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And so these were spiritualized things that the Greeks were bringing into because they couldn't wrap their head around a physical resurrection. Our God is the God of life, remember. He's not the God of the dead. He's a living God. So they couldn't wrap themselves around this whole, because they were so caught up with their pagan lies of, of this afterlife and the spiritual world. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you do here. You're going to live forever. In the after I mean, this is all satanic. And so this this spirit of Antichrist was already present. The, 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 the momentum for what was going to come in this abomination of desolation, this power that would rob the sanctuary of strength was already happening, was already building. It was fomenting this move. Satan was realizing that, okay, I have to change my strategy. I got to make my own religion. And he did. He made plenty of religions. Islam denies that Jesus came, uh, basically that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus even died on the cross. So that's spirit of Antichrist, one billion people. Guess who started Islam? You'll find out in a few episodes. But by John, by the time John gave a revelation, uh, things got a lot worse. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is Jesus speaking. And of course, later in chapter 2, to the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught 
Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you had basically idolatry going on, same old stuff, right? Graven images. And you also had the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans basically taught this idea that you see today, this idea of hyper-grace, where basically you have a license to sin. There's grace, Jesus died, so you can do whatever you want. That's it. It's been paid in full, baby. You can do whatever you want, right? Is that really the gospel? No, it's not, of course, because if you feel that you can do whatever you want, then your heart hasn't been transformed. You haven't been born again. Once you're truly born again, you don't go back to your old way of doing things. You don't want to. You're disgusted by it. Of course, we still make mistakes. There's that trauma and those habits that we've built up over time, but, you know, those things are done away with slowly and slowly. It's a constant battle, but we don't we don't say, oh, I have a license to sin, but that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. This was a heresy in the early church, and you can see it even today. So these, these threads, let's put it this way, were already being woven very early on. In Acts 20, Paul knew that he that wolves would come in to deceive the flock. This is verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that the, for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So wolves would come in, wolves in sheep's clothing. Do we have that today? We absolutely do. And it's been throughout history. It's already been in the making from the very beginning. In Second John chapter 1, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Again, we see that spirit of Antichrist. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Many deceivers, many Antichrists, they deny the incarnation, basically. There's plenty today, too. So these things are being woven from the very beginning. Remember, Satan was bound at the cross. He, The war in heaven in Revelation 12, where it details the devil being kicked out of heaven, that happened at the cross. That happened because Jesus became the new principality and power through his death on the cross. He, you could now fear God rightly instead of fearing death. People were enslaved by death because of the devil's deception to Adam and Eve. The devil plunged the world into a, a world that's run by death. We, we all die. That's a certain thing. And because of that, everything is, is, is the question is, okay, what am I going to do before I die. You know, the death, the idea that we die controlled people at every point in time. But because Christ died for our sins and promised us eternal life, we now could not fear death anymore. And the devil lost his power. He could no longer accuse people because there was grace. Christ had paid, the, paid for sin in full. Anybody who believed in him was free from the devil being over them and accusing them and basically being able to have a case against them through the law because the devil's the accuser. So all his <clears throat> spiritual power was destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean his activity was stopped when he was bound, but he was kicked out of heaven. He lost his place. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that first off, from that point in time, from the cross, from the devil was being, when the devil was kicked out of heaven as a principality, he, there was no more place for, for him found. He's been, that's it. Like he knows this is the final these are the last days. The last days have begun since the cross. We are in the tribulation since the cross. The tribulation is not some seven-year event. The tribulation has been going on since the cross. There, think about the Christians that died 
in the first couple hundred years and throughout history, really. Horrible, horrible deaths. Being burned alive, fed to lions, sawed in half. I mean, you name it. People were just tortured horribly for their faith. If you're not going to call that tribulation, then I don't know what, what tribulation is. But we've been in the last days since the cross because the devil knows his time is short. After the cross, God determined a date that the world would be judged. And so the devil's been on his way, rush, 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 to try to create a one-world system where he could fool as many people and kill as many and trot over the host, trot over the sanctuary. That's what we've been living in. All this makes complete sense when you really understand your basics, that Jesus is king. Now, spiritually, we're in the millennium, and when he returns, he's going to destroy death with the resurrection. There's no future millennial reign. If there is a Jesus that shows up and we don't meet him in the air, that's a false Jesus. But Jude chapter 1 also has a couple things too. In uh, verse 4 it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. By the way, designated, who were designated for this condemnation, means predestined. So the people, all this mystery of iniquity, this was predestined to happen so that we would see the error of evil and and test the people who are true believers, who were elect and predestined to believe in Christ. But later in Jude, in the, in the first chapter, verse 17, a call to persevere. They knew that the, the falling away was going to happen at the end. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So these people in the last days are going to be scoffers, they're going to be people who deny the resurrection, who deny, you know, all the things of the gospel. And what do we see out today? It's in full bloom. These things have bloomed throughout the last 2,000 years because, again, we are in the tribulation, we are in the time there's Satan is basically been kicked out from heaven. Now, he's also been released, I believe, recently, in the last 200 years or so. Who knows exactly? But I think that we're in the very last portion of history, as you can plainly see by looking around you, because we are closer to a mark of the beast than ever because of a worldwide digital system of currency. Um, we are closer to a one-world religion than ever before. Everything is moving into that direction. That's why I truly believe Christ will return in our lifetime. But one more verse that's really telling is in 1 Peter 5, verse 13, where he's speaking to the church in Rome, most likely. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, obviously, there's no church in Babylon. So what is Peter talking about? Well, we know that his Mark, son, is not his real son, but a spiritual son. And we know that from Colossians 4 verse 10, Aristar, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. This is final greetings. This is where Mark was in Rome with Paul. And so when Peter wrote this, and he's talking about Mark, we know that he's talking about Rome. He's calling Rome Babylon. Now, there's a church in Rome, but Rome itself was pagan Rome. It's, that's Babylon. So Peter is calling Rome Babylon. Keep that in mind. That's really important because obviously he didn't, he wanted to hide it from the pagans, right? The pagans didn't understand the reference, but the believers understood like, oh, this is the, 
capital of rebellion, basically. Mystery Babylon. So it was already in the very beginning. This is this is my point now. Let's, let's integrate all of this. From the very beginning, there were already people, agents of the devil, working in Christianity to subvert it and to twist it and to change the gospel, to trod the to trod on the host and to ultimately make the sanctuary desolate, meaning it's not being used, to divert people from the gospel into some other place, and therefore the gospel, the sanctuary, is desolate, to place themselves in between man and God, in between Jesus and man, to stand in the sanctuary and proclaim himself to be God. We'll see how that's applied to the papacy, but ultimately that's already that was already happening in the days of the apostles. And it's very interesting to me that Peter calls Rome Babylon. As you'll see in future episodes, there's a very, very good reason why that's the case. I don't think that he was just making like a side comment, like, oh, you know, gosh, Rome is just so pagan, we call him Babylon. I think there's something deeper there. And it relates to this whole idea of the papacy fulfilling the Antichrist power on the earth. Because the papacy is mystery Babylon. The Catholic Church as an institution not Catholics, but the Catholic Church as an institution, the papacy is Mystery Babylon. It is the mother of harlots. It is the one that has spawned all of the um, reprobate church, all these churches, basically, all these institutions. Islam was started by the Catholic Church. We'll look into that. All the Protestant churches, which have now, basically, there's so few churches that are truly biblical. And even the ones that are, they still tie to the the Catholic Church through Sunday, through, to basically having a Mass, and they don't believe in transubstantiation unless you're Lutheran. But this whole idea of Sunday service, you're paying allegiance to the Mother Church, and pretty soon there'll be a reason to unify all the religions because we all have the same thing. Like, oh, we have Mary, we have the Charismatic Movement. <laughs> all these are tied to the Catholic Church. It's really quite profound. There's so much to talk about, guys. I really... Wish I could talk more, but ultimately that's why this series is so in-depth and it's so long because there's really quite a lot to talk about. And I hope to open your eyes. I truly hope to open your eyes because what is coming will deceive many and I hope that you won't be one of them. But look, learn to see spiritual things instead of spiritual uh, instead of physical things. Stop looking after Israel and third temples and all these different things. Look at spiritual realities. The devil wants you to stay in the physical world so that you're blind to his movements in the spiritual world. That's the point. He doesn't want you to see what he's doing. Because if you do, then you won't be deceived. The physical things that happened in the Bible, throughout the Bible, were always types and shadows for the future. Now, the Reformers, universally, when people got back to reading the Bible, when people got back to saying, you know what, the gospel faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. When people were doing that 500 years ago, they realized that the papacy was the power that Daniel warned about. And they appropriated all these prophecies correctly to the papacy. Now, what did the papacy do in response? Can't have that. Can't have the truth getting out. So they created the counter-reformation. They created the Jesuits. The Jesuits were responsible for so many things, I don't even know where to start, but ultimately one of those things is futurism. The idea of a future Antichrist in a, in a physical, little, literal temple that needs to be rebuilt for the Jews to have sacrifices and 
He's going to put an end to sacrifice. It's all this nonsense. Everything that you could possibly read in the books of Daniel and Revelation, they have twisted it to be a fleshly, worldly interpretation, to blind your eyes to the spiritual reality that has been fulfilled through history and that will be fulfilled by Satan and his minions. So that all started in order to deceive people, and dispensationalism is the result of that. It's a lie. It is a Jesuit lie, and these things are spiritual in nature. We will have much more deep conversations in future episodes. I want to take this one at a time today. I introduced quite a lot. There's quite a lot more detail with sources that I'm going to get into in future episodes, but I hope that you, at the very least, have started to see that the Bible is not this thing to read completely literally and physically. It is a historical book. It's a poetic book but it also deals with profound spiritual truths because God is weaving things together in history as he creates real people and real situations. They are foreshadowing spiritual realities that you can't see. That's the point of having the things that happen physically first so that you can have an understanding of the things that you can't see in the future. See how that works? And that takes having spiritual eyes. It takes prayer, it takes discernment, it takes being open and not being so stuck on these physical representations, especially when you're presented with the truth, which I hope I've done a good job of doing. But either way, I hope you've learned something. I hope this has opened up some things for you. Um, is As usual, <laughs> if you want to subscribe, shoot me an email at tutor at danceoflife.com or go to my website, danceoflife.com, because you never know when these platforms will um, you know, kick you off. I, mean, I don't know. Some of the things I'm going to be talking about are probably controversial, and I don't know if whether they're going to stay on YouTube or not, or BitChute or whatever else. BitChute's fine. Rumble seems to be fine, but you just never know. That's my point. So if you want to be in touch, the best way to do it is through my website. So either way, I hope you've learned something today. I hope this has opened up some things for you. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.